This is the Christian Artist Honoring Christ Through Creativity. My name is Caleb, and uh, today we are going to be hearing the first part of a 12-part series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, This is a bonus episode, so I hope you enjoy. Uh, Hey guys, I want to thank you just for the opportunity, Lord, to just teach your word, Lord, to um, just teach about your law, and I pray that we would all just delight in that, Lord, that we would um, love your truth and seek to be corrected by it. I just pray for each and every person here, Lord, that they would uh, just get real with you um, and just do some business with you tonight, Lord, of just focusing in on the truth that you have given us and uh, how we often neglect it. And I pray that we would just have a desire to, to learn your law, to study it, and to apply it to our lives, Lord. And it would be something that we commit to memory, Lord. It would be something that we... Um, we, we memorize, Lord, that we would delight in your law and meditate on it uh, so we would be kept from sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So uh, we're going to go through Ten Commandments series, right? So I figured just first things first is we would just read through Exodus 20 where God gives the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. Okay, so a little bit of background in um, chapter 19. Um, it says that God descended upon Mount Sinai in the form of fire. And like the, uh, there's like these, these weird trumpet noises that are coming out of nowhere. And the entire mountain is like earthquake shaking. And it's on fire. And there's black smoke everywhere. And from it, God speaks to the Israelites and gives them the Ten Commandments. Um, and says, these are the things that you should not do. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the picture we have there. It's kind of freaky. Um, uh, yeah, and so the, the Israelites are just around the mountain, and God is just like, yo, this is what's going on. Um, so we're going to start with verse 1, and we're just going to read through just all of the Ten Commandments, just so that you guys have a preface for the entire series. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, guiltless who takes him in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. All right, so those are the Ten Commandments, right? So you might be thinking, isn't the law of God an Old Testament thing? And you might have heard that somewhere before. Um... Is it the law of God an Old Testament thing? Uh, Because we have written in John chapter 1, right? For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. Talking about Jesus. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we've had the law, but now we have grace and truth, so we don't really need the law anymore, right? This is what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And what that means is he came to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. He knew that we wouldn't be perfect. He knew that we wouldn't follow the Ten Commandments perfectly. So Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, not to throw it away. He came to live a perfect life. But what about love, right? You've all heard the greatest commandments, right? Uh, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right, so problem solved, right? All we have to do is love people and love God. Not in that order. Love God and love people. And then everything's fine, right? We don't really need the law. We just need love. But notice what Jesus did. What he really said was, you want to know what the greatest commandments are? One, two, three, and four are the greatest. And then second best commandment is uh, five through ten. Think about it. If I truly love God, I'm not going to break the first four commandments, right? I'm going to put God above all other things. I'm not going to make any graven images. Um, I'm not going to use God's name in vain, and I'm going to remember the Sabbath day. I'm going to remember God's holy day. So if I love God, I'm going to follow those commandments. If I'm breaking those commandments, I'm not loving God. And the same with 5 through 10, right? If I love my parents, I will honor them. If I love my wife, I will not commit adultery against her. And if I love any random schmo-mo, right, I'm not going to kill him, steal from him, lie to him, or covet his stuff. Pretty simple stuff, right? And if I'm breaking any of those, then clearly I'm not loving that person. So that's what he was saying. When he says, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying all of the Ten Commandments. Make sense? Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, okay? And then we're going to read from Hebrews 8. So just to kind of give you some, some uh, background and some idea of this, and also we've never really talked about Old and New Covenants as far as we can remember. So in the Old Testament, they would take animals, right? And they would sacrifice them, and there had to be a blood payment for sin. And that's how they were. Um, that's how their their sins were covered, right? But their sins were not blotted out. Their sins were not washed clean. Their sins were covered, right? Um, and then they had a high priest who was uh, the high priest was the only person that could go into the ark of the um, the covenant into the presence of God, right? In the temple of God, he was the only person that could go there um, to make a, a yearly sacrifice for any unintentional sins or any accidental sins or any um, sins that were done in ignorance. Like, I didn't really know 
that this thing was wrong. Like, and so the high priest would go into the presence of God and make a sacrifice every year for all of the people of Israel for any unintentional sin. Okay, so we have um, the sacrifices they would make. Um, we have a high priest, and then we have the dwelling, that, that God literally dwelled in the temple of God, right? So those are the three uh, main keys of the old covenant. And where it's new, where, where you take those three concepts in the new covenant, and the answer is, uh, wh what was the sacrifice? What's the payment for sin? Jesus. Who is the high priest? Who can, who can um, mediate between us and God? Jesus. And who is the dwelling place of God? Jesus. When he said um, that if you, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. He's talking about himself. So all of these three things, it's really just Jesus. The new covenant is all about Jesus. And in reality, though, the old covenant was also all about Jesus. Because it was always going to foreshadow Jesus. And my favorite lines from a rapper named Shylin is this. Um, in, um, before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. And what that means is, before the cross, people were saved through faith in Christ, through faith in a coming redeemer. In uh, Hebrews 11, it says that Abraham had faith that, Isaac, uh, that, um, he, that Jesus would come from his bloodline, right? And God asked him to go sacrifice his only son. And he knew, he had faith that God would still fulfill his promise. And so he went up to sacrifice his son. So Abraham was saved by faith, and that's what it says in Hebrews 11. Same with Noah, that through, um, in faith, Noah made an ark to save him and his family, right? And so in the Old Testament, for we have it said in Hebrews that always in the Old Testament, people were saved by looking forward to the coming Redeemer and having faith in that. And it's the same with us in the New Covenant. The only difference is they were looking forward to Christ and we are looking back. And Jesus, it says that Jesus is not dying every year or didn't have to suffer every year since the beginning of time for sin like the people did in the Old Covenant when they sacrificed um, animals every year. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He did it once. Once for all the sins for those who would believe upon him, right? So that's Old Covenant and New Covenant. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about what it says in Hebrews 8 about the New Covenant, right? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the Old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So another thing about the old covenant is God would say, if you do these things, I will bless you. I will give you more land. I will enlarge your territory. I will bless you with food. You will not have any need. You will be, it's pretty much prosperity gospel stuff. God was like, yeah, I'm just going to give you everything. And I'm going to defeat your enemies before you. And all you have to do is follow my commandments. Do what I say. And I will give you all these things. But it says, the new covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. What's the better promise? We get Christ, right? We get to go to heaven and be with Christ. That's the new covenant. For he finds fault with them, with the old covenant when he says, or I'm sorry, the Israelites. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, here we have it said, all right, who is the house of Israel and the house of Judah today? 
Anybody know? It says in Romans that God is going to divorce his people, Israel, and instead going to have his, his chosen people, the new Israel, be all of those Christ, all the Christians, all of those who around the world from every tribe, nation, and tongue who would trust in God, trust in Christ. So when it says here, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, that's what it's talking about, all right? We are the new Israel. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the new Israel. A chosen people, right? A holy priesthood. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Okay, so Jesus made a new covenant with us, but his law has not gone away. Instead, he's writing it on people's hearts. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, so real quick, it is not talking about everybody. Me and a coworker of mine were having this, this conversation at work of like, what, is, what does that mean? Is that talking about something in the future? No, that's talking about just Christians, though. It's not talking about every person, like right now. If you're thinking, I don't have to tell people, know the Lord, they're talking about those who are in the new covenant. His people will not have to turn to each other and say, know the Lord, because if you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, you know God, I know God. And our sins are washed away, right? Okay, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Notice he's talking about the covenant, not the law of God. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right, so here's the question. This is his covenant with his people. This is Christ's new covenant with his people. Are you in that covenant? Is what we just described you? Because it says in Psalm 111, verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Do you delight in the word of God? Do you know his law? Do you understand it? Do you care about it? Do you care about knowing it and obeying it? And why is God's law such a big deal, right? I mean, doesn't it confine my freedom in Christ? If, I, if I'm just supposed to love people, right, how do I, you, don't, you don't have to tell me how to love people. I just know, right? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. All right, so let me ask you this, right? So if you are truly a Christian, if you are truly in this new covenant in Christ, right, God's commandments are not burdensome to you. And let's say you thought that. What part of the Ten Commandments is burdensome to you? Thou shalt not kill? Is that a problem for you? Thou shalt not steal and lie? Putting God first above all things? Not using the Lord's name in vain? Is that a problem for you? His commandments are not burdensome to his people. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And Jesus said that himself in John 14, 15. Those who love me, obey me. Us as Christians should hate our sin and love the law of God because it keeps us from sin. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right, are you a fool? 
I would call the people in that in the, uh, video, the, the people who were worshiping about avocados, I would call them fools. And I want to keep using this analogy. Um, being a fool in Proverbs is not a mental incapability. It's not a problem of um, they, they had, like, they were dropped as a child. Like, it's not, it's not that they, like, they're incapable of fearing God. It's that they hate wisdom and instruction. That's a choice. Fools is a moral issue. It's not a mental incapability. It's a moral problem. And all over in, in Proverbs, it calls people stupid and foolish. So if you want to, don't do this. But if you want to have some fun with verses, you can say, you know, like uh, this next verse here, right? Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. You can say that to people. And, hey, that's what God said, not me. Um, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> what did Jesus do when he was tempted? Okay. Let's talk about this a little bit. So, so. Okay, let me, let me go back a little bit. So if we're talking about, about fools, right? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Is that you? All right? Is that you? Or do you fear God or do you hate being corrected? All right? And that would be a, a question of, um, that would be something you should question your salvation over. If you hate being corrected by the word of God, that's a problem. And you should go to scripture. You should go to God in prayer and check that out. But for those of you who are, who are confident, yes, I love the law of God. How many verses do you have memorized for when you're tempted to sin? Because that's what Jesus did, right? How many times have you struggled with a sin for like over a year? And then finally you're like, you like read a verse and you're like, oh, that's really good. And then you just keep going. And then a month later, you are back into that sin because you've forgotten the law of God. You're like, you're like the man in James that looks at a mirror at himself and then and sees what he's like and then immediately goes away and forgets. All right? Let the law of God change you. Let it affect you. Let it, let it store in your mind. Memorize scripture and recite it to yourself when you're being tempted. That's exactly what Jesus did. You know, it's, it's like, oh, God, I need to be delivered from this temptation. Go to the law of God. Go to what Jesus did when he was tempted and follow in his footsteps. He recited scripture. Commit to memory the law of God to keep yourself from sin. If you truly love him, this is a delight to you. So once again, stupidity is not a mental attack, but a moral one. He who hates reproof is stupid. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. All right, so back to Exodus 20 here, right? So we, we have this scene again, right? where God is descended upon the mountain as fire. And there's an earthquake, there's trumpets, and everybody's freaking out, right? Because that's scary. Um, and then this is, this is what it says right after he has given them the Ten Commandments. So that was verse 17, we're at verse 18, right? So now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Right? That's fair. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. If you had to pick one, who do you think you are? 
When we are confronted with the knowledge of our personal sin, are you afraid of God? You should be. But does that fear draw you, drive you farther away from God or does it draw you to him? In fear, we should run to him, not away. Okay, so salvation is this picture, okay? If you died today in your sins, you have not trusted in Christ as your salvation, you have not turned from your sin, you have not been born again by the Spirit of God. Okay, you died today, God would not judge you on what other people think. We, it, God's not going to interview your, your friends at school or your parents or your siblings and be like, all right, what do you think? Did you ever go to heaven? Oh, okay, all right. Right? He's, He's going to ask one person, himself. He's going to judge you by his moral standard, not the people around you. So mainly, our problem is not horizontal, it is vertical, right? If, so that's why it says the first commandment is to love your Lord, your God, and the second is to worry about everybody else. But mainly, we are to please God, not the people around us. We're supposed to love the people around us, but if we're seeking to please them, we're no longer seeking to please God. Right? Uh, Paul says that in Galatians chapter 1. For if I, was, if I was still trying to please men, I would not be a, um, a lover of God. I would not be trying to please God if I was trying to, to please the people around me. And it's the same thing with God. We are not judged by what the people around us think. We are judged by what God thinks. And here's the thing. Our problem is God, okay? If you get and stand before God, your problem is not sin in the sense that sin is going to somehow drag you to hell. God will punish you because of your sin. But sin is, or Satan is not going to drag you to hell. Sin, this, this weird entity creature thing, isn't going to be like venom and like grab you and like, okay? Your problem is the fact that God will rightfully send you to hell. That's the problem. And so we get this idea of we're supposed to fear God. God is the problem. We run away from him rather than running to him because he is the solution as well. We are saved from God, through God, and for God. Be like Moses. I just, I love that picture. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This scary, giant, earthquake-causing fire entity. And he knows this is the solution. God. And do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you as a good thing that you may not, what? Sin. A healthy fear of God keeps you from sin. I have experienced this in my life. Okay, so here's the thing. For us as Christians, we need to be bold to call sin out for what it is. Not to be jerks, not to prove that we are better than them, because we're not, but because we love God first and foremost, and we seek to please him, right? And also because we love other people, and we want to see them saved, but mainly because we seek to please God. And we need to call out sin like it is. To call things what they are, that abortion is murder, that adultery is wrong, that pornography is wrong, right? These are the things we need to talk about because if I spent seven years in sin and nobody told me that this thing was wrong, 
I would be angry. I remember, I remember um, being on a camping trip, right? And the entire week, I, I was doing this thing, right? And the entire week I was doing this thing, and it wasn't until after the trip that somebody was like, oh, yeah, when you were doing that thing. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, are you, what? You guys all knew that this was happening. You guys all knew, oh, yeah, he's, he's being a creep over there. And nobody said anything to me. And I was genuinely angry because I was thinking in my head, if, if, if I knew that somebody, that a friend of mine was doing something that was wrong, I would want to tell them because if the places were reversed, I would want to know that what I'm doing is wrong. We've had this problem, Caleb and I have had this problem with friends of ours, that we try to, to say, yeah, if, if I was doing something wrong and you didn't tell me, that's, that's wrong. Because you're supposed to be my friend. You're supposed to try to keep me from sin, right? That's what the, the body of, of Christ is supposed to, to do for one another, to spur one another on to good works as iron sharpens iron, right? To keep one another from sin. And that is our job. That is our duty. And it's it just, um, just as important when preaching the gospel, right? When we're witnessing to other people to be serious about sin and to call it out for what it is. I've had, I've had friends at, at work that they'll be like, hey, do you think this thing is wrong? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I think that's wrong. And they don't run away from me. They don't hate me. They respect me for having these um, convictions because they're not my convictions. They're what God says. And that should give you boldness to speak out about those things as well as you're not trying to tell people, hey, I think that's wrong. You're saying, God thinks that's wrong. Right? If I was without God, I wouldn't think that was wrong. I think that's totally fine. But because God has changed my life, he has revealed to me truth, he has revealed to me his law, and now I seek to live by it. And so I'm trying to tell you, this is sin. This is wrong. And people should appreciate that. People should appreciate that. And I know my coworkers have when I call things out for like they are. And, and you know, sometimes they'll try to hide stuff from me. They'll be like, I'll be like, oh, what did you do last night? And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. Because they know, they know what I would say. And then eventually they'll be like, yeah, I was doing this thing. And I'm like, I mean, all right, that's wrong. And they'll be like, yeah, whatever. But like, and, and like, I'm not gonna like tackle them on the ground and try to be like, Right? If, if, if my coworkers swear all of the time, just all of the time, I'm never going to pull one aside and be like, hey, it's a bad word. You're not supposed to use that word because they're not Christians. I should not hold them to a standard of Christians. I should not expect them to be like a Christian. I don't have the right to, to try to keep them accountable to something. That doesn't mean I'm not going to tell them I think it's wrong. But I'm not, I'm not, every single time they swear, I'm not going to be like, oh, all right. But I am going to, they, they do know, yeah, I don't do that. I think that's wrong. Having a, a fornication, sex outside of marriage, yeah, I think that's wrong. They all know that. But I'm not, I'm not harping on them because I don't, I'm not trying to hold them to a standard that they don't hold themselves to. I'm not trying to hold them to something that is the law of God. Does that kind of make sense? It may seem like I'm contradicting myself there. But um, the idea is this. People should know that you think something is wrong. Because if eventually they figured it out, 
that you knew something was wrong and didn't tell them, that should be bad. They should be angry at you, and rightfully so. But the idea of trying to consistently hold them to something that they don't want to hear, they don't want to listen to it, I would say don't waste your time. Because all it's going to do is make them angry at you. What you want to do is in love say, hey, I think this is wrong. I don't think this is wrong. God thinks this is wrong. And leave it at that. Make sense? All right. All right, so. All right. So God speaks his commands to the Israelites, right? Chapter 20. And then Moses goes up to get the rest of the law and get the Ten Commandments in like physical tablet form, right? Written by the finger of God himself. Okay, so he goes up on the mountain for 40 days and uh, God is telling him all these other different laws and then gives him the Ten Commandments. And it isn't until chapter 32 before Moses comes down from the mountain, right? And what were the Israelites doing? Breaking the Second Commandment. All right, this is ridiculous. There's a giant, flaming, gargantuan, earthquake, black smoke, trumpet-sounding, flashes of lightning, mountain God who is saying, don't do this thing, and they're afraid, and they're like, if God speaks to us, we're going to die. And, they're all, and, then, and then 40 days later, they're like, you know what? We should do exactly what God just told us not to do. What? That's insane. It, how easy they forget, right? And how easy do we forget? The idea that somehow that kind of physical manifestation of God and the fact that we have a conscience and we read the law of God and still willfully disobey it is the same exact thing. Because we have his law written on our hearts and in our minds. If you were a Christian, you would have his law written on your mind and in your hearts by God. And we do the same exact thing. But here's the thing. This, this is... This is ridiculous because, right, like they had just been told not to do this thing. But here's the thing. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, right? In, in, in which, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, right? God commanded us to do something he knew we couldn't do, all right? You might, and people will say, right, that's unfair, that God said, do this thing. I know you can't follow the law perfectly, but I'm telling you to do it, and he knew that they weren't going to do it. He knew that they weren't going to accomplish that. And then it showed 40 days later that they're already breaking the commandments again, right? As, a, as, a, as the entire people, like not one of them was like, oh, this is a bad idea. It, it, Moses came down, and the entire nation of Israel was bowing down to a piece of gold. It's insane. You see, but God needs no apology, he didn't give us the law because it would save us. He didn't tell people the law because then they would perfectly change and everything would be fine. He gave them the law to, to know, to, to show us that we needed saving. Because of our sin curse, we are dead in our sins, right? And we have to be made new in Christ. We have to be born again. Following the law cannot save anyone. All right, we need to be born again. Because if, if I follow the law, and I, I have, um, when we have been street witnessing, I've literally said this to people, because they think, well, you know, I used to be doing these bad things, but now, you know, I'm a lot better. And I have to try to convince them of, okay, let's say you repented of your sins right now, right? And you, you never sinned again for the rest of your life. 
right? That's impossible. That's not going to happen. But let's say you did that. What about the sins you've already committed? Those still have to be paid for. There still has to be a payment for sin. And that's when I point them to Christ. There has to be a payment for sin, right? So following the law cannot be saved, uh, cannot save anyone because payment still has to be made. We need to be brought back to life. And God is the only being that can grant that miracle. Faith in Christ's righteous life and his atoning sacrifice on the cross was always the plan of redemption and salvation. Even, even before God gave his people the law, God's plan before the foundation of the world was to send Jesus to save us from sin. There was never a plan B. Adam and Eve didn't sin and he was like, well, darn, I guess I have to figure it out now. It was always his plan. And in Genesis 3, God killed lambs, shed blood, covered Adam and Eve's sin and said one day, said, says one day, I will bring a redeemer. Through your line, I will bring a redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent, who will defeat sin and death and save my people from sin. The law was not supposed to do that. The law was to show us that we needed salvation and to once again point us to Christ, who would fulfill that law. All right, so real quick, um, we're going to read uh, something that, that I just read in the Evidence Bible for uh, what Ray Comfort had to say about this verse in particular. This is right before what we read about Jesus talking about the New Covenant. All right, so it says, talking about the tabernacle, right? They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Okay. And this is what Ray Comfort had to say about those verses, or that verse. When God spoke to Moses about the tabernacle, he told him to do all things according to the pattern. He didn't say, do the best you can. It had to be 100% accurate, according to the instructions God had given him. How much more, then, should we follow the pattern God has given us for bringing men and women into the knowledge of our eternal salvation? Our failure to use the law lawfully as a tutor to bring sinners to Christ, as it says in Galatians 3.24, God has resulted, I'm sorry, our failure to use the law lawfully as a tutor to bring sinners to Christ has resulted in the ruin of millions of souls, something which will not be fully realized until Judgment Day. The pattern of evangelistic endeavor is made plain in the book of Romans. To obtain God's blessing, we must never deviate from the biblical paradigm set so clearly before us in the inspired words of the Apostle Paul. Winston Churchill noted that the nose of the bulldog is slanted backwards so he can continue to breathe without letting go. Has anybody ever been bitten by a bulldog before? That's good. Uh, when a bulldog bites down on something, their nose is slanted back so that they can keep biting down and just, just like, you know, their teeth sink into flesh, but they can still breathe because of their nose. All right? That's kind of a weird picture. But um, get your teeth into the importance of using the law of God to bring the knowledge of sin, and don't let it go for any reason. Let it be said of you, the law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Let it be said of you, let the law of God, let the law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. When we are teaching other people about the law of God, we need to bring a knowledge of sin. Because if they don't know what they're saved from, they will never want to be saved. I could go around telling people um, that, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan and purpose for your life, right? 
And what I'm saying is I'm giving them the promises that God has for his people with no, um, with no repentance, with no faith, with no trusting in God, with no knowledge of where they are at. When, when you are preaching the gospel, it has to start with the law of God. We have to see who we are before a holy God. The law is like a mirror, and it shows us where we have sinned. All right, so one last thing I, I uh, want to share with you. All right, so for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So as we go throughout this series um, and we talk about the law of God, if you were a Christian, this could be something that you start to feel a lot of guilt about. And it starts to really weigh down on you. And rather than trusting God, you might take it out on yourself. Okay, especially if we go to to a sin that is like, like, I own that sin. Like, that's that's me. I do this, and I need to work on this kind of a thing. Um, Your repentance to God uh, might be a little bit troublesome. So here's what we want to... Here's what we want to tell you, right? So this is a story from Ray Comfort, right? A woman in her early 40s committed adultery and was so weighed down with a sense of guilt that she cried off and on for three months. In an effort to be free from her sin, uh, she finally, or to free from her guilt, she finally confessed her sin to her husband, who forgave her immediately. However, the woman still found no relief from her guilt, sinking deeper and deeper into depression. She would often sleep downstairs in a two-story home, wrapped in a blanket, weeping and praying. One night, her loving husband crept downstairs and was relieved to see her wrapped in a blanket, soundly sleeping. In the morning, he went outside and picked a rose. He then wrote her a love note and left it on the table for her to find. After some time, he went into the room and was horrified to find that she had committed suicide during the night. We need more than our conscience to keep us from sin. We need a healthy fear of God. I've been learning this recently, that... Let's say I had wronged Chase, right? (laughs) Not really hypothetical. Let's say I had wronged Chase, right? And I went to Chase and I asked him for forgiveness. And he said, yeah, I forgive you. And then I go away and I'm like, I don't believe him. I I still feel this guilt. I still feel like I have uh, a problem that needs to be solved, right? I still feel terrible in my sin. And I don't trust the fact that he has forgiven me. That would be wrong of me, right? I am thinking evil of my brother. And that would be wrong of me. And it says in 1 Corinthians 13 to think no evil. To believe all things and to hope all things. To think the best of people. To think the best of my friends because I love them. Right? And so if I had wronged somebody and I go to them and ask them for forgiveness, I should trust them when they say, yes, I forgive you. Alright? And it's kind of ridiculous not to. It should be the same thing with God. That if you go to him in repentance, repentance is not like, is not like a, um, I, sh- I don't want to say a lifestyle, um, but I kind of do want to say a lifestyle. When I say a lifestyle, you should live a lifestyle of repenting before God about all of your sins, right? And when you sin, you go to God and repent. But you go to God and repent, and then you're like, oh, I'm forgiven. And then instead of carrying it around and being like, and not trusting the promises of God that God is faithful and just to forgive us, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? 1 John 1, 9. If we go to him and say, God, forgive me, 
and don't trust him and his promises, we are then in more sin than we need to repent of, right? That, that if I go to him and I ask for forgiveness truly from a repentant heart, that his promise to us in the new covenant is that he will forgive us, right? So if you're going through this and a sin really gets to you and you're like, man, that's me, all right? When I say don't live a lifestyle of repentance, I mean you go to God with that sin because you committed it, you repent in a moment. And then, instead of carrying the guilt around with you, you let it go and trust that God has forgiven you. Now, what I'm not saying is that you should forgive yourself. Because when, I, when people say, just God has forgiven you, you just need to forgive yourself. That's, some, that's putting power into your hands where it should not belong. Putting the power of forgiveness into your hand where it does not belong. You're not looking to forgive yourself. You're not looking to be okay with yourself. You're looking for one thing and one thing only, the forgiveness of God. You're seeking to please God, not men, including yourself. So we need a healthy fear of God. And the promises of God in his new covenant are that Christ loves you, will never leave or forsake you. Trust those promises. If you are truly in Christ, trust those promises. Okay? Let's pray. Uh, dear God, I want to thank you so, so much, Lord, for your law, that we can look at it, Lord, and, and seek to keep ourselves from sin. Lord, I pray for each person here. They would have a desire to abstain from their sin, that they would, they would hate their sin, Lord. You would give them that desire to, to hate their sin, to love your law, and to seek to please you above all other things. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There you go. That was uh, Connor's uh, sermon on the fulfillment of the law. That's the first part of our uh, 12-part Ten Commandments series. We'll probably be posting more of these as bonus episodes in the weeks to come. So thank you so very much for listening, and we will see you next week, hopefully. God bless.